Moriarty! Are you concentrating yet? He broke my arm. Nope, I sprained it. I feel squishy. This is supposed to feel squishy. Feel that! Yeah, it's a sprain. I'm a doctor. I know how to sprain people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Style Guide Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Orr and Dave Morris. How are you doing today, Dave? I am feeling uh, ready for the game, my friend. The great game. It is on. That's right. Today we're talking about Sherlock, the uh, BBC series starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Yep, that's right. You know, and I was going to say something about elementary when you asked me how I was doing and then realized that they never say it in that show once. So I went with a uh, reference of the game. <laughs> Do you think they say it on the uh, TV show Elementary? <laughs> I don't know. Probably. <laughs> it's, it's funny how many versions of Sherlock there are going on right now in the uh, in the media world. Yeah, lots. And when the BBC One version first came out, I think I feel like the... Uh, the movie one with uh, with uh, what's his name Robert Downey Jr. Robert and Downey Jude Jr. Law. had been out, or like they'd just come out with a sequel to it when the first BBC One Sherlock was coming out, and then there was the one with Lucy Lucy Liu. Was she doing one? Yeah, with uh, that actor that nobody can ever remember his name. Yeah, in the states. Yeah, and they just did that movie with Sir Ian McKellen playing uh, an older version of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, lots of Sherlock right now. He's really uh he's really taken the taking the world by storm. We we may have hit peak Sherlock though. There might not be room for any more Sherlock in the world. Well, uh that's sad because uh, Sherlock Holmes is a fantastic literary figure and I think he is uh he is he is deserved of this uh spike in fame. And I I think that's true. I think that's true. Although one of the things that that I I often question is how much of this is just taking the idea of a neurotic detective and running with it? Like, is this just a new take on the police procedural? Yeah, it, more or less. <laughs> but yeah, so we are talking about, uh, this episode is specifically about the BBC, BBC's uh, Sherlock, the new one with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Not every possible Sherlock Holmes, but we do need to spend a little bit of time, I think, before we get into the show, just discussing the Arthur Conan Doyle creation of Sherlock Holmes. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but yeah, I think you're right. I don't recognize knighthood. I'm Canadian. Y- you know, we, we have knighthood, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you, you want to start talking about uh, the, the Conan Doyle? Uh, well, yeah, just the creation of Sherlock Holmes as the, the, the best detective ever. Because I think uh, uh, my memory serves what I know about Sherlock Holmes' creation. was This was around the time of... Uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle knew a doctor, uh, I believe, is the is where the the origin story of Sherlock Holmes comes from, and the doctor was so good at uh, deductive reasoning. Uh, is that what it's called? Am I, am I using the right term? Deduction. Sure. Yeah, where yeah. you like based on this, this must be true. Um, and he he was the kind of doctor where someone would walk into the room and they'd have like a bit of a limp, and he would, by judging by how they were moving when they walked into his office, he'd be able to tell them what was wrong with them before asking them any questions. And so this doctor's amazing ability to deduce information uh, based on how someone was acting uh, and the whole scientific method and all that kind of thing kind of led to this idea of like, ooh, what a great detective character it would be if he could do that same thing. Having never heard that story before, that's that's a fascinating uh, origin for the character and totally believable. Yeah, that was like where where Conan Doyle first got that spark of it. 
was this whole idea of of the scientific method meeting with meets this new deductive reasoning techniques and things like that. That that makes the TV series House even more fascinating now that I think of it. Oh, because that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, like they they just went back to the core idea instead. <laughs> mm, yeah, and have you read any uh, Sherlock Holmes like the novels? I have read, I think, every single Sherlock Holmes story. Oh, great. Wow. I have not read them all, but I have read some of them and find them to be rather good. But I actually liked the new TV series better than the books. <laughs> well, and, and that's not terribly sur- surprising because there's an element to the character in the in the short stories and even the novels that isn't terribly interesting. You know, every every mystery that he solves, he solves it in such a way that we never we never get taken along for the ride. Mm-hmm. It's just they show us a series of puzzle pieces and then at the end Sherlock Holmes says, "Oh yeah, this is the puzzle piece that no one else was able to see, but I knew all along." Yeah. As opposed to in in the film and television versions where at least you get to come along for the ride and, and piece it together yourselves, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Because I, th- I think in in most of the episodes of, of uh, the show, you can you can make educated guesses along the way, whereas in, in the short stories, it's often just out of nowhere where the solution yeah. comes from. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and yeah, so like this idea of Sherlock Holmes as like this incredibly genius detective has, I think you nailed it with House. It's not just like the the different, different reincarnations of Sherlock Holmes throughout the years that we've seen, but how Sherlock Holmes has kind of infected what we consider to be a detective uh, and what we think of as a detective, like the hat and the, the magnifying glass kind of thing. Of how Sherlock Holmes has just, just infected popular culture. And if you look at like a show like like Columbo was exactly the same way as Sherlock Holmes, where he'd know everything and he wouldn't tell you until the very end he'd reveal how he knew, you know, like old detective TV shows. Uh, and that all comes from Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and I think you can even see it in uh, Idris Elba's Luther, which is a, a similar sort of take on on the detective in the very neurotic genius, but, but he happens to actually be a police detective. Mm-hmm. I, I think Idris Elba would make a fantastic Sherlock Holmes as well, although I think I'd prefer him to go be Bond one day. But mm, Yeah, for sure. But yeah, Sherlock Holmes has certainly influenced our idea of the detective such that the, the deer stalker hat immediately tells us that it is a detective or the pipe. Yeah, and, and you know, it's a, a, one of the things that was so beautiful about the, the character Conan Doyle wrote uh, versus the stripped-down versions we've now seen throughout all these other historical, like th- these other detectives that have been influenced by his work, is he had a lot of, like, darkness in Sherlock Holmes, like the the drug addict of Sherlock Holmes, that when you grow up as a kid hearing about Sherlock Holmes or watching, like, the old Sherlock Holmes movies about it, you don't really get that. <laughs> um, but when you read the books, you do get that he is a disturbed individual that nobody really likes. Yeah, like even the BBC series that that definitely makes him more neurotic. Like his his drug addiction is cigarettes 
and 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 nicotine patches and and they they water down the darkness element to make the character more lovable and more likable yeah although they do keep it in there which i was is something I, I did enjoy where they're like doing a drugs bust in the first episode and watson's like this guy a junkie and her homes is like john and tells him to stop <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then later on in like uh, season series three, he is he is definitely doing heroin. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so well, they and, do keep it in there. I, I do appreciate that about it. Yeah, but they they did want to keep him to be a very likable character, whereas the the Holmes in the Doyle stories is is the least likable character. We love Watson and and we tolerate Holmes. Yeah. Which is, I think, very similar to a show like Luther, whereas where Idris Elba plays this character that is not in any way likable. He is a sad, angry, manic depressive who happens to be good at solving crimes. And you root for him because he's the protagonist, but you you don't for a second want to spend any time with this man. Yeah. Whereas Benedict Cumberbatch plays Sherlock Holmes with such glee and joy that it's hard not to love the character. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about the new uh, the series, BBC One's Sherlock Holmes, or I guess it's just called Sherlock. Uh, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the visual style? Do you want to start keep, keep talking about the characters or, or uh, what, what, what do you think? Where's a good place to start? Well, I, I like the characters as a starting place because this is, above all, a character study that happens to be rooted in mysteries. And so mm -hmm. I think the characters is a good place to begin with. Because they do, uh, I, I think uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes is fantastic. I think uh, I, I could not, I don't think there's anything more or less I want or would rather not have in that character uh, that he brings out. I think he does a wonderful job of making you like yet not like Sherlock Holmes the entire time you're watching him. It, it's funny because I I really liked Robert Downey Jr.'s take on the character the first time I saw the uh, the Guy Ritchie version of it. Yeah, yeah, so did I, so did I. I, I thought it was fun and clever and it, it used the charisma of Robert Downey Jr. really well. And I didn't think... I'm trying to remember the order that I saw it, but I didn't think that there would be a a better sort of take on the character. And yet, for me, Benedict Cumberbatch is, I think, the best Sherlock Holmes that that there has been. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the fact that they've modernized the whole series and put it in present day London, uh, he's an even perfect, even better fit because he looks. They they dress him up so nicely, so he's always looking like a well dressed London, you know, metropolitan gentleman, uh, and yet still so pale and skinny and like does not look healthy uh, or happy. Yeah, yeah, like there there is something off about him, and part of that is Benedict Cumberbatch is he's. He he is he's an attractive man, but he's an odd-looking man, mm -hmm. and they really accentuate his oddness for for the purpose of this. The way the way that he he almost never smiles, and his facial expressions are so carefully chosen. It just he comes across across as a little bit eerie, and yet at the same time very stylish, very fashionable. And I think you're you're right in how they've crafted that character's vision. And they do, and they keep, uh, like we were talking about earlier, they keep the, 
the idea of the darkness of Sherlock Holmes, this sort of drug addict of Sherlock Holmes, this this uh, this detective who's so good at what he does that it rubs everyone the wrong way and everyone hates him because he can tell exactly what they were doing last night. And yeah, so I, I think they do that really well in that character. They do, they do. And then choosing Martin Freeman for Watson, I'm I'm not sure there is a more likable man making making movies today. <laughs> yeah, true. He is so likable. <laughs> Yeah, like you, you, you really love his portrayal of the character, but also like you, you just sit there and you want him to be happy, you know, right from the beginning when you're you're seeing him sitting in in the chair talking with his counselor, you just think, oh, I want you, I want you to be happy, you poor sad man. Yeah, what, he is, what can we do? He is so charmingly, uh, yeah, and they make him such a, a funny like the, the idea that he's like a womanizer and <laughs> he keeps trying to talk to all the. The women that he meets, it's like it just makes it, it, it fails miserably at all of the relationships he tries. It just makes him sort of this like charming, lovable uh, dolt. And and surprisingly so. Like I think the the womanizing point is is well drawn because in a lot of characters that wouldn't come across well. But with with Martin Freeman's take, you 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 forgive the character a little bit. Yeah, because he's just lonely. He's just so lonely. <laughs> yeah, and nothing ever happens to him. Uh, and seeing, yeah, seeing Martin Freeman sad, you feel sad. Seeing him happy, you feel happy. You know, and like, I think being like, you know, how how Sherlock is the 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 mind, the scientific, the the genius, and that John Watson is the heart. You know, and you really get that from from Martin Freeman because he is just so lovable and likable. And that's something that I would I would say isn't there in the Conan Doyle version the the heart of watson yeah I, I i don't think it's at all as prominent in in conan doyle's version of it because watson really is the narrator in, in yeah. conan doyle's stories he's a doctor too so and 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 so he he's more of a doctor in conan doyle's story of like you know he himself is a bit of a scientific military man which is why the the take on making him a a, a surgeon vet of Afghanistan mm-hmm. was such a was such a brilliant little move on their part. Well, the funniest part is that in the novel, he's also a vet from Afghanistan. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, it's great. There was another Afghanistan war happening then uh, when he first wrote the books, which is just kind of like what a perfect coincidence. For for the show, not for the world, but you know, yeah, not not at all for the world, but but it does work out really well in the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then uh, of course uh, the other characters that uh, I think we have to talk about is of course uh, his brother, yes, Mycroft Holmes, who is actually also one of the producers of the show. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's the other uh, producer guy. What was his? What's his name? I can't even remember his name right now. Is it Mark Gatiss or is it Stephen uh, Moffat? Okay, yeah, Mark Gatiss. Yeah, it is Mark Gatiss. Yeah, so he's one of the creators of the show. Him and him and Stephen Moffat did it together. Uh, and uh, he plays Mycroft Holmes and does a fantastic job. And they, I like that they keep making the joke about the diet because Mycroft Holmes is supposed to be a very large man, <laughs> and and he clearly Mark Gatiss is clearly not a large man. No, not not even remotely. Yeah, so they keep having jokes of him like working out or losing weight or something like that. But I think he plays a wonderful, uh, caring yet um, uh, acerbic and unliked brother. He he comes across as both more brilliant than Sherlock, but also more distant from the world, and 
and not as concerned with the the humdrum of humanity. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, Sherlock certainly is is a distant character in in the BBC version. You know, he doesn't he doesn't understand the the emotional experience of living in the world in the same way. But he cares about the little things in a way that Mycroft doesn't. Mycroft is always big picture thinking. Well, I think one of the the moments that I love about uh, in in the series is when Mycroft Holmes is is talking about how Sherlock Holmes has the mind of a scientist or a philosopher, and yet he insists on being a detective. So what can we deduce about his heart? And Watson says, uh, what? And Mycroft says, I haven't the slightest. But when he was younger, he wanted to be a pirate. And I love that moment because it is Mycroft Holmes telling Watson that Sherlock Holmes, despite his science of deduction and his genius mind, is a romantic who lives in this like romantic world of pirates and detectives. And that's where he wants to live. He doesn't want to be a scientist. He doesn't want to be a chemist. He doesn't want to be like a, a, a government man saving the world like that. He wants to be out there being a detective. And I think that's just like the moment where uh, two things. He, he defines Sherlock as being romantic and also defines himself as being cold and not romantic. Yeah, yeah. And I think we see that particularly in, uh, well, more towards the third series, right, where Sherlock wants to surprise uh, Watson when, he, when he's come back from the dead. And he's, he's really just, he's so excited about this joke. Yeah. And, and, and you can see that he, he hasn't thought it through. Mm-hmm. Which for Sherlock is is surprising, right? He hasn't thought through the consequences of his joke, but at, at the same time, it's because he got so caught up in the idea, because he he is ultimately this romantic who who falls in love with an idea and pursues it fer, uh, fervently. Yeah, yeah, and the other uh, other characters we have to talk about before we get into this uh, um, Moriarty. Moriarty, of course. Maybe like uh, I think I think originally people may have been shocked by his portrayal of Moriarty, but at the same time, I think everyone thinks it has come around to the fact that it was incredible. It yeah, Andrew Scott has has fantastically. It's Andrew Scott. Yeah, yeah, Andrew Scott has fantastically taken that character and made it his own. Yeah, I mm-hmm. I can't. I honestly can't imagine a, a more somber, serious take on the character as working anymore. And yet super playful. Oh, yeah. Like, like, the whole well, sing-songiness of his voice, you know, daddy's had enough now, like that whole uh, bit there, the way he plays this character, like he's this crazy, insane, just having a laugh all the time. Yeah, it, I mean, he he very definitely is mad and he is aware that he is mad and and embraces it wholeheartedly. Yeah. And uh, that moment where he says, uh, where Sherlock says, "People are people have died," and he says, "That's what people," and then shouts, "Do so loud as it echoes through the pool and just gives shivers down your spine." Like that is the moment where you see this playful, fun Moriarty that he was playing, and the fact that he's still the most evil man in the world. And they. The the thing that that's so fascinating about him is he doesn't get a ton of screen time. He's in the show for one episode in the first season, one episode in the second season, and 
just shows up at the very end of the third. Yeah. And yet at the same time, he is so integral to that series. The first it, two seasons as well, yeah. Yeah, I I think it would I think both of those seasons would would become unhinged without him grounding uh the end of the season in both cases. Yeah, for sure. Oh, well, he does show up a little bit in the uh um season series 3 as well where he's like in Sherlock's mind palace and stuff. That's true. That's true. But it doesn't he he's never the same level of villain in the third season because of course he is dead. Of course. As opposed to where they which is why they move I think to to uh Charles Magnuson and attempt to have him be the villain that hinges uh, that season. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. But, I mean, for a character that, that is so relatively minor, if you were just looking at screen time in the overall series, he is such an important part. Same as someone like Irene Adler, right? Oh, she's such a great character. She is, and we didn't even know we were missing her in the first series, right? Yeah, I I thought about her in the first series. I was like, they didn't have the the woman that he likes, but then of course she was the season season one or episode one, series two. Yes, and she does such a great job as well. And that the way they play that the the love story between the two of them, and again how they've updated her character to be like a dominatrix, I think is just perfect. It is, it is. And, and and that's the thing. The there is nothing lost in the modernization of any of the characters. Nope. And and there so easily could have been, because it's it's hard to modernize a story. It it, it really is, because a lot of the ideas are are rooted in in the time in which it was written. And I, I don't think we lost anything in in this this modern take. No, not at all. And I think I think maybe gained some from a lot of it, uh, but yeah. So I, Irene Adler, she was played beautifully and uh, wonderful. And there is another character that we haven't mentioned at all that I think we have to, which Mrs. is Mrs. Hudson. Oh yeah, Mrs. Hudson. Of course, Mrs. Hudson. How can we forget Mrs. Hudson? <laughs> uh, who is just so fun. She well, yeah. She she she's a delight. I mean, there's. It, in a sense, her character is unimportant in that she she doesn't move the plot along, but at the same time, you know, she is this perfect little foil for for their relationship, for Holmes and and uh, Watson's yeah. relationship. And that, to and that each actress other. does a wonderful job of playing that that caring yet uh, like uh, you know angry at them sometimes, happy with them, in love with them sometimes, thankful for their existence. Like she does a wonderful job of playing that motherly like character and really grounds that Baker Street to make it feel like a home instead of just like, you know, a, a set. Yeah, that's actually a great way to describe it. It feels like a home because of her presence and because of her her care. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. I think you're right would would be we we would be missing a lot if that weren't part of the show. And the whole thing with her, like, husband's drug cartel and stuff is uh, just hilarious. What a nice little twist on Mrs. Hudson. Well, and, and, and that's the thing that I really love about this series, which, uh, which we can come back to later. But just how there are a bunch of little stories told all around this universe that we just get hints of or uh, quick references to. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't know the full details of. And and that I really appreciate because the the world feels like Sherlock has been living there for a long time. Yeah, definitely. And that, yeah, mm-hmm. 
But there is another character that I'd like to mention, which sure. is Molly. Molly Hooper. Molly Hooper, who was never intended to be a full-fledged character in the series. Uh, she was just meant to be like a throwaway ca- character, like just a doctor that he meets in the first episode. Uh, but fans reacted so positively towards her and loved her so that they kept bringing her back. And then eventually she became like a very uh, intrinsic part of the plot, especially at the end of series two, uh, where she helps Sherlock fake his death, right? Like like she becomes a huge part of it. And I think she's like that actress is just ugh, amazing. You just love her. You can't not love her and feel sorry for her at the same time. Yeah, she's so earnest in 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 her just her portrayal and and her love for sherlock and and you you feel bad for her all the time like she's very similar to watson in that way mm-hmm. in that you you just you want her to be happy but at the same time you're i mean it, it's kind of a joy watching her her failed attempts to get sherlock's attention again yeah. and again like whereas watson accepts his role in in sherlock's life Molly very much wants a bigger part. Yeah, and it is through Molly Hooper, I think, that we see a lot of the the growth in Sherlock Holmes as a a person, like a feeling person, I should say. uh, His heart, we see it grow through his relationship with Molly Hooper as it goes on, you know? And then, like, and like how at the end of series two, she's asking if he's okay because she can tell he's not. And, you know, when no one's looking and he's like, you're looking and she's like, I don't matter. And he feels bad for it. And he's like, you know, starting to feel for her. And then at the beginning of series three, when they spend that whole day together, you know, like to thank her and stuff like you see him becoming more and more a caring person through his relationship with with Molly Hooper. It's the, the development of his emotional intelligence. And and I think in a lot of ways, it's it's the answer to what Mycroft says, I think, in the very first episode where he says Sherlock Holmes is a great... Is that... No, no, that's not Mycroft. That's um, Inspector Lestrade. He says Sherlock Holmes is a great man. And I think one day, if we're very, very lucky, he might even be a good one. Yeah. And and he is slowly becoming a good man. And and of course, Watson has a lot to do with that, but we see its dividends paid out in his relationship with, with Molly. Yeah, we see the whole character played out through his relationship with John. You know, we see him, everything about him comes out better with John there. But his heart especially comes out with Molly Hooper. Well, yeah, because for the first time in his life with with John, he has a friend who, I mean, uh, I think the the episode where they're they're both arrested and they have to escape from the police. Yeah. and And they're running off together. And and they're they're so gleeful about it, like it's fun. They're yeah. they're boys being boys, and they're holding hands. <laughs> now people are really going to talk. <laughs> well, and th- and that's another part of the show that's so great: the self awareness of what it is and where it fits within in this new modern era of storytelling. That that's something else altogether. Yeah, well, I think we can move in there now. I want I want to talk about this modernization of the old story. Which they did really well, I think we'd both agree with all of the characters. Their modern takes were just fantastic. The fact that um that Mrs. Hudson used to run a drug cartel and that the woman is a uh dominatrix and that, you know, like uh And Watson's writing a blog. And Rots- Watson's writing a blog instead of writing a like a uh, taking notes in like a journal. And Sherlock Holmes is still a consulting detective because that can still exist. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and that uh, Moriarty is still the center of this criminal web, which makes perfect sense and and all of that. But I think the modernization of of the whole concept of Sherlock Holmes is done really well. Uh, and I think the way they take the stories and twist them into a modern day era, like the study in pink, uh, which I think is based on the study in scarlet, if I'm not mistaken, with the original title. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Yeah. And the, and the way they modernize that story, because in the original one, it was a guy who worked as a cab driver who, <laughs> who poisoned people with these pills <laughs> and that did happen uh, and made them choose one and, they died and he lived, right? Uh, but the way they modernized it into a modern-day storytelling uh, is fantastic because the original story is not that great. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like, lots of the the stories that they're they're starting from, they're, I mean, they're very short little ideas. They're not particularly um, deep, and so it's hard to, hard to have an hour and a half of television dedicated to almost any of them except for something like The Hounds of Baskerville. Yeah, which was which was a longer novel, but they're they're able to to modernize them and play with the ideas, but twist them enough that they can they can turn them into something more. Yeah, but they also improve them. I think uh, like the study in Scarlet has this weird middle section. I don't know if you remember it, where all of a sudden we're hearing the story of this like Mormon family in America. Do you, you know, I that? don't remember. I don't remember that at all. The cab driver is like going after this person because of some crazy story. And he, we hear this whole story in the middle about Mormons and family and a woman that he loved and person guy killed her or whatever. And then he came to England to find him and now he's hunting him down and trying to kill him. Like, um, and so when he wrote Raka on the wall, um, I think, yeah, he wrote, he wrote it on the wall in the book as well. And he actually meant Raka. It didn't mean Rachel in the book. That was one of the funny little jokes they twisted when they modernized it. And he just wrote it on the wall because he thought it would throw them off. (laughs) (laughs) And the whole thing with the pill being like one poison and one not poison was only like at one point when he finally found the guy, he made him do it to test it to see if God loved him. And he's like, God loves me. Uh, and that that was it. And so in the the modern day version, when they make it a serial killer who's like making these people commit suicide, it fits way better into our modern day storytelling kind of like wants and needs. Well, and and that's the thing, right? Like it fits into what we expect of of this sort of television show. Like mm-hmm. it's it's not as if it fits better into the reality of the world, right? Because it doesn't. It, we, we there there aren't serial killers around every corner. Yeah, but but it fits better into the idea of a police procedural. And yeah, the idea CSI, of a CSI cop Baker drama. Street. <laughs> yeah, as Lestrade says, yeah, and and that's what's so lovely. They know what kind of stories they're telling, and they make fun of them at the same time as they honor them. Yeah, and so it's it's never like CSI Baker Street is a joke, and it's a funny joke, but it's also completely accurate as a description of the show. Totally, yeah. And, you know, and that's the thing is they do, when they modernize it, they honor the original story. Like they even have the cab driver say uh, at the end, he's like, I've played four times and I'm still alive. It's not, it's not luck, it's genius. Or maybe just God loves me, which is what the original killer in the original story says, that God loves him. And so you see that they are honoring the original story. 
within with these little nods and these little winks towards it and like the whole thing of him being able to tell Watson everything about him in the original story it's a pocket watch that you have to put a key into to to wind it and there's all these scratches around the hole because his brother was a drunk because you never see those marks on a sober man's phone you never see a drunks without him you know except it's not phone it's pocket watch it's such a brilliant modernization well and and that's one of the other things that I love about the show because one of the biggest struggles with any sort of detective show, I mean, particularly now, is the the cell phones and smartphones have created this kind of power imbalance that you always have to find a way to disable them, right? Yeah. So they're they're never they're in an area where they get no reception or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's always that kind of ridiculousness. But what they've done with this show is they've really embraced the idea. And Sherlock is constantly consulting his phone for a detail or, or for yeah. more information or for mm -hmm. the news. And, and they take pictures with their phones and they call each other and they text each other and all these sorts of things. Yeah. And they never... They never say, okay, well, we live in a world of cell phones, but let's take away the power of the cell phone. No, they totally use the cell phones. Yeah, and, and so they're, they're embracing the modern element in a way that you actually rarely see on cop procedurals. Because mm -hmm, it makes it almost too easy. Yeah, and for them, they say, okay, well, let's see, let's find this, uh, let's find a way to make this a challenge for our writing. Let's, let's find a way to make this work even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they do it super well. I love it. I love everything they do. And same with computers and stuff. They use, uh, they, they, I mean, they don't really use computers too much, but like Sherlock has a, a blog, this, a website that he posts all of his things on, and, and Watson has his blog that he runs things on. And they look things up on the internet all the time, you know. Uh, I think Watson says to him, I looked you up on the internet last night. Uh, or they'll go into like uh, chat rooms. Uh, I think in the what's it called which episode it was i think it was episode two of series three the sign of the three yeah when he's on all of the computers talking to all the women the mayfly man yeah it definitely is and he's talking to all the different women that have dated this ghost and he has five computers set up and you see him in these five different chat rooms asking them all these questions uh it's great they totally embrace that computers and network improv or internet chat rooms exist and let's use that and they they always want to be to be living in that world which is why even though it feels kind of cheesy in the third series where we're talking about the fan clubs and and yeah. the the what are what are they even called there the empty hearse right right the empty hearse like there it it certainly has this element of fan service when they when they do it in the episode but it also feels pretty real in that that's kind of how we operate today yeah you know we we develop fan clubs and and follow those sorts of people really fanatically well and just the idea that Sherlock Holmes becomes a celebrity yeah because mm -hmm. of course he would become a celebrity of course and yeah that's uh, the fame makes perfect sense because that's what happens in nowadays worlds memes get spread people become famous on the internet for for doing their things john john watson's blog would become incredibly popular if he was writing these amazing detective stories you know like uh it all makes perfect sense uh, and then i love that they do this whole funny thing with the the hat because uh arthur conan doyle's sherlock holmes never wore a stupid hat um that was like the the movies and tv shows from like the early 1900s that started having him with the sorry uh the stupid fox hat 
or whatever it's Every called. time you swear, I have to go find our <laughs> anti-swear sound and pull it out. Um, but every time, it's, it's just, it's so funny that he, they, they always make the joke about the hat because he never wore it in the books. So they make it a joke. And that the, the press think of him as the detective in the funny hat just because he put one on once as a disguise. <laughs> now, like, that's his claim to fame, even though he never wears it. And it's this struggle throughout the whole series. It's so funny. And that's, that, that's part of the, the self-awareness all over again, where they know the stories that they're telling and where they're telling them. And one of the things that I absolutely love about the series is that there are three episodes in a series. Mm-hmm. And, and yet at the same time, they're telling dozens of mysteries or dozens of, of stories in those three episodes. Like they're they're very rarely just one single narrative yeah. that they're they're following through. And so they give themselves room to kind of play with the character more and allow themselves those sorts of, you know, moments of Sherlock Holmes in in the trash magazines and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And having him like just solve like little crimes here and there while the whole the the arc is happening. Yeah. Well, and and there are times where they those weave into the broader story, mm-hmm. like the the Hounds of Baskerville, which definitely does weave into. Yeah, the, the funny joke of Bluebell's gun missing. Well, and yeah, and all those cases at the very beginning, right, where um, the I can tell human ashes or or that sort of stuff. That's where, not the Hounds of Baskerville. That's uh, that's the episode one with uh, the woman. Oh, that's a scandal? Oh, yeah, yeah you're right. You're mm-hmm. right. That yeah, is. but it has all these things about the ashes and stuff that ends up being all part of the overall, overall story of uh, Bond heirs go. And, and they, you, you wouldn't even, like, you, they don't have to be. And yet at the same time, the, you know, they're, they're very much play, putting all these pieces out and then picking up the ones that they want to later on and, and taking the stories that were, that were bigger and, and really having fun with them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, something else they do uh, that we haven't talked about much, which we should, because I think it's one of the most important aspects of the show that makes it stand out against not just other Sherlock Holmes stories, but other television in general, is the visual aesthetic of the show and the way they use the cell phone texting and how it pops up on the screen, uh, like and, or, or like when they're invading the Hounds of Basker, the Baskerville military base and the tracking is going for how long Mycroft, until Mycroft finds them. And you see it as they like open the door, you see it on the wall there uh, and how they put it into the world. Uh, and right from the very first episode where they all they get those, they all get the text say wrong and you see the word wrong pop up over all of the different cell phones. Uh, I think that that aspect of the show is just, it really helps draw you into this world this this very unique world of Sherlock Holmes. Well, and it's it's little things like when we're when we're reading narration, we can follow along the trail of evidence very clearly because it's mm-hmm. we're we're reading the story. And in television, it's so much harder to do unless they you know point the camera specifically at it and they tell you every, every individual piece. And what they've done is they've found this middle ground where. We'll look at a person and we'll quickly blast through on-screen phrases or words that spell out what Sherlock thinks and notices about them, some of which he's going to bring up and some of which he isn't. But we get to follow along on that ride in a way that is really quite elegant. 
Yeah, and uh, like yeah, the how he looks at people and sees the words of like you know two dogs, three dogs, and and different things upon their face uh, gives us an idea into his mind, which is uh, amazing. And then the mind palace stuff, and this is the thing I also love about the mind palace stuff is that it evolves as the show goes on, and how in like the first few episodes we see his his brain like like pictures maybe flying up in front of his face, and then as it goes on we start. Uh, we see him actually like enter his mind palace and he's like in, in the Hounds of Baskerville where he's like shaking his head around and like making words appear and scratching them out. Like he's he's like in uh, Minority Report or something like that. <laughs> and then in the series three where he is in a courtroom with the witnesses standing around him and his brother is up on the podium and all of these people that he's starting to form relationships with are starting to become part of his mind palace. And I think that is a beautiful sort of, it shows the growth of him as he slowly builds these relationships and slowly finds people that are important to him. When he gets shot um, in the, I think it's the final episode of, of series three, he gets shot. I can't recall. By Mrs. Watson. I, th- I think, I think, th- I think <clears throat> that's right. I think it is. He gets shot and as he, he gets hit, it's like Molly is there talking to him about what's going to happen when he dies. And Anderson shows up and he falls and then he's like in his mind palace running around and his brother's there and he sees Moriarty and he like sees all of these people that have become a part of his life have now become his mind palace. And I think you're right to, to show that that's pointing directly to the character's growth in a really, really particular way. And and it's what what makes him more and more human as the series goes on, and yeah. and and Watson does a good job in the second series of kind of reminding him to be human around the uh, the kidnapping of the kids and mm-hmm. that sort of stuff and yeah. maybe and just not so those, much smiling yeah 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 exactly and it 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 does a great job of saying okay you need to you need to step back and 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 be be a person here mm-hmm. but yeah the, the the way they visually show what's happening in sherlock's mind and the way they visually show uh the, the what's happening within computers and text messages and stuff like even when watson just sits down on his couch and looks at what sherlock sent from his phone and it says like if brother has blue ladder arrest brother sh and so like he just like it shows it on the wall instead of like showing it over the shoulder so we see the phone like it never looks very good when you see that in tv shows and so they've just embraced it and just been like no no let's just put it on the screen people will get it and we do and we get it and we love it yeah and then and then i mean what else they they do is they play with music so well in this show mm. where like there are what what in in the uh, Reichenbach fall they they have two actually things set to music. The first is Moriarty's you know master plan at the very beginning unfolding. Yeah, and then his trial set to Sinner Man. Yeah, right? that's what it is, right? That song comes on, you're like, oh yeah, this is great, and it's like, gonna go run to. <laughs> I, I don't remember how it goes. <laughs> but 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 it lets them rush through something that could take a lot longer to show, in a very fun and and uh, aesthetically pleasing way oh and they do that pretty well with uh that episode with the woman where uh sherlock's like i've got to get my battle armor on john and he goes and he's like changing and anytime it's sherlock it's this funny like like the sherlock holmesy kind of music and then it cuts to the woman getting ready and it's like this very you know sedulterous sedulterous that's not the word (laughs) 
<laughs> very sultry music <laughs> as she's getting ready and she's like what color blood you know like that whole moment oh which now makes me realize doesn't he he mirrors that line later on uh, in the series with blood what color blood y- yeah in um Oh, it doesn't matter. I think it's the third ep- the third series, the first mm-hmm. episode. I think he says that. Anyway, not important. Okay, so there's something I do want to ask you. I think we've talked sure. about the visual style pretty well. And the music, uh, there, there's other aspect, moments where music is great. Like the fact that he plays the violin has always been lovely to me. Yeah. But I want to ask you, because I've heard this from other people, that the middle episode of every series is always the worst. Do you agree with that? I want to hear your take. Well, okay. So on the surface of it, I think that that it's pretty easy to say yes and why. Yeah. Because we're looking at those episodes that we're looking at are the... uh, Blind Banker. The Blind Banker, the Hounds of Baskerville, and the Sign of Three. Yeah. And, um, I mean, if you want to look at it from a storytelling perspective... In the first series, the first episode introduces us to the character in the world, mm-hmm. and the third episode introduces us to Moriarty. It's hard to top both of those. Yeah, they're just so good. Yeah. In the second series, the first episode introduces us to Irene Adler. Mm-hmm. The third episode brings us back to Moriarty, yeah. who is our favorite villain. And those are hard to beat. Yeah. And then the third one, the first episode is Sherlock's Return. Which is from, great. From, from death, yeah, a lot of fun. And, you know, the, the promise of his his return. And then the third one is the the villain episode. Yeah. And so we they've established very much, like, the, the first episode is always about introducing something something to us, that it, uh, an important part of Sherlock. And the third episode is always the villain, the, the villain's master plan. Yeah. And so the second episode, if, it, if it's not doing one of those two things, what is the second episode in each series doing? Just it's, entertaining us, yeah. Yeah, it's just a fun case. But, I mean, I think, I think that The Blind Banker is an excellent episode. Yeah, me I, too. I, I, I think that it is so much fun. I think The Hounds of Baskerville isn't as good, but I think that... I mean, it's this weird, uh, it feels too much like they said, we're going to modernize the Hounds of Baskerville. Yeah, the whole thing with the fear drug is a little weird. Yeah, it feels like it doesn't quite belong in the same caliber of storytelling. And then the sign of the three is the wedding of of John Watson. Mm-hmm. And that's that, I think, is maybe my favorite episode of that series. It's just so much fun. Oh, wow. Where we get to see yeah. Sherlock Holmes at his most human. Well, I just have to say that you are, you perfectly spoke my exact thoughts on this issue. Because <laughs> I think the Blind Banker was a really great episode. It just happened to be between two even better episodes. So I wouldn't say the middle one's bad in the first series. It's just the other two were better. Yeah. And the second series, I would agree, The Hounds of Basketball actually is kind of weak. But I would say it's almost like the weakest of the whole show. Yeah. Not just that series. Uh, and then the sign of three is one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, I, I love it. I find it. I found it so fun. Like I think, if that episode all it was was Sherlock giving that best man speech, I think I would have been happy. <laughs> 
Yeah. And when they wrote that speech, uh, I don't know if you've watched any of the behind the scenes stuff on it, but they wanted him to give simultaneously the worst and best best man speech. <laughs> and he did. He does. It is so terrible. But that whole that bit where he's like, um, where uh, at the end of the speech where he's like, I'm 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 the most you know un- unpleasant person you could ever wish to meet. And, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, so when John Watson was asking me to be his best man, I never thought I'd be anyone's best friend. And you're like, oh, and you start like tearing up, you know, it's so beautiful. Well, and, and, and that's the thing. It's, it's one of the most human episodes in the entire series. Mm-hmm. And it comes at a point when Sherlock is his most human. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it couldn't have come earlier and it fits so perfectly there that I'm entirely happy with its placement and with its with it in that series. Yeah. I mean, The em- Empty Hearse is a fun episode that delivers on, on Sherlock's return in a bunch of different fun and, and cool ways. Mm-hmm. But it it's so reliant on, oh, Sherlock was, everyone thought Sherlock was dead, but he's not for mm-hmm. the first half of that episode and so you don't get into the meat of the story as much as you do in the other uh episodes yeah but the sign of the three is just so fun and they flash back to all these different moments and they tell the story in this really unique and interesting way and i think this is one of those things where you were saying that uh when you watch the sherlock episodes you can kind of piece together the breadcrumbs as you're watching to figure out the crime unlike the novels and in that episode, like if you watch it again, knowing that the photographer is the murderer, it's amazing that you didn't notice it before. Because so yeah. much of the editing and visuals of that episode is going through montages of, of people having their photographs taken. Uh, and it's like like everything is focused on photographs. And like the like it's just like, of course it's the photographer. Everything in this episode's focused around photography. Um and like you don't notice at all until afterwards when you look back and it's like, oh, they were giving us hints. Well, and it it's just like in the the third episode of the first series, where when we're first introduced to Jim Moriarty as Molly Molly's boyfriend, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like you, we should have recognized immediately who he was yeah. Be- because they don't just throw characters at us on that show. Yeah. And they, and, and they disguised and, it well as Molly just trying to get Sherlock's attention. Yeah, they, they did. They did a great job of, of obfuscating in that way. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the fun parts about the, the series that I enjoy so much and something like the Hounds of Baskerville, I mean, most of that episode, you can probably guess almost immediately. That it's like, this weird fear drug? Yeah, like just the way that it plays out, right? Like it's in and and it, everything that happens in the episode kind of reinforces that up to like Sherlock being freaked out, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. It it just, it doesn't, um, it, it, it does, it gives us too much of the episode or, or too much of the mystery that we can solve, whereas the other ones build it out more carefully and more slowly yeah and they even make that whole first sequence in the sherlock uh, that episode the hounds of baskerville about him wanting cigarettes like it's about drugs yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it's very well done it's very cleverly done and in uh the series one even they're taking cabs all over the place they are yeah Mm -hmm. yeah uh it's great so one one thing that i want to ask you sure is um, I mean, we all obviously love Moriarty and think so that he's fantastic. Much. He's so good, and it's and it is too bad that the character is dead. Oh, like, I it is, know. 
Um, but what do you think of uh, of Magnuson, Charles Magnuson, as oh, the villain yeah, in the yeah. third? Series? So this is this is maybe my biggest criticism of all of Sherlock, is okay. that I found Magnuson to be not a very frightening bad guy in the slightest. And I think they had Sherlock explain to John Watson how terrible Magnuson is because if they didn't, none of us would have even thought of him as terrifying because we had no reason to, you know, like Moriarty has hundred years of his, of like, of like literary history backing up his name. (laughs) So when we hear Moriarty, we go Moriarty and we get scared. You know, and then you meet him and you're like, this guy's insane. He's exactly, oh my gosh, he's Moriarty. But Magnuson doesn't have any of that, you know, uh, build, build up for his name. And then when you meet him, he is, he's creepy and off-putting, but he doesn't seem nearly as frightening or terrifying as Moriarty. Like Moriarty had uh, like laser sight guns all over the place. Uh, so he'd kill you and, and Magnuson just knows stuff about you. Yeah, and the Napoleon did, of blackmail. Yeah, and it did not seem as uh, there wasn't as much mortal danger, and he did not seem as frightened of Magnuson. Uh, and they tried to build him up in the first episode's return, where you see him at the end watching Sherlock save John from the fire. Yeah, but you don't know really who he is, so it doesn't really have any. You know, there's not very much tension there, as opposed to the very beginning of series one when. When Sherlock steps on the cab driver's arm and he yells, Moriarty! And you're like, whoa, that's a, that name sounded scary the way it was said. You didn't get that with Magnuson in the first episode. And so I found Magnuson to be not that terrifying of a bad guy. And when he comes in and he like pees in the fireplace and stuff, uh, which is like the scene that I think everyone loves about him because it's such a yeah. great status move there. Yeah. Is he is playing a really good high status character. And really taking control of that situation. Uh, and the way Watson reacts when he leaves about him peeing in the fireplace is like, uh, is it, it, I find it's his attempt to try and make him seem more scary, you know, to have Watson be so scared of him. But still, even after all of that, I did not find him that frightening. Well, and and I, I hate that his plan was blackmail Mary Watson to control John Watson to get control of Sherlock, to get control of Mycroft, to get control of the British government. <laughs> there must have been a better way to do it, man. But it, like, you know, that's the whole crux of his character is that he's all about blackmail. And all it is is that he knows things and then he prints things. And so he doesn't even improve things. He just prints them in the newspaper to, like, ruin your reputation. It just seemed like the kind of thing that after what happened at the end of Series 2, that Sherlock should have absolutely no concern over. Yeah. Having his reputation ruined because it has happened and he doesn't care and it doesn't matter and like what what who cares? Uh, so like there's all that. So it just kind of felt a, a, compared to Moriarty uh weak, very weak. Uh as of not as just a villain that Sherlock Holmes faces, fine, fine, yeah. He he would have been a great villain, but I think they tried to build him up to be worse than Moriarty and it just felt it it they didn't it didn't they didn't sell me on. Well, and and that's the thing for me. Like, I didn't need him to be the shaping force in the first two episodes. I didn't need him to be the one who was in the backdrop of Watson's kidnapping. I didn't need him to be the one that controlled, uh, that put Mary Watson in the 
in the position she was in and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. If he was just the villain in the third episode, I think it would have been fine. But yeah. instead, they tried to make him another Moriarty. Yeah, they tried to make him the Moriarty of the of the series three. And you can even tell, actually, in, in I think, uh, is it series two where Moriarty, sa- he says the word pressure point. He says everyone's got their pressure point. Right, right. Uh, and that is what Magnuson's character is all built around, having these pressure points. You know, So it's like they took that aspect of Moriarty and turned it into its own big bad character, which just didn't, didn't quite work. It did not work as well yeah. as I think they I'll- hoped. And, and I think that they, they made an interesting choice in that, like, Sherlock just up and kills him. Brilliant, like, I think yeah. that I think that rather than than playing out the same narrative, Sherlock has just learned from from prior experience. It's geez, easier to just nip this thing in the bud at the beginning. Yeah. And, and it is and it is the moment when he kills him at the end. It is uh, like that episode is a great episode, even though I found the villain not that great. I found him not so frightening. But the episode itself and the way he kills him at the end, uh, and then as soon as that happens, all of a sudden the name of the episode, you realize what it means, right? His his last vow. Because at the end of The Sign of Three, he vows to do everything he can to protect Mary and, and John. And at the end there, it's like all he has to do to protect Mary and John is kill this guy. And so he's like, done. So he killed him. And, and it goes back to uh, also the third episode where – where, you know, Sherlock says, alone is what I have, alone protects me. And Watson's response is, no, friends protect people. Like it's, he, he, he understands that lesson so acutely now and, and is willing to, to do something extreme to resolve that. Yeah. But it raises the question for me, what happens next? Oh, because Moriarty's back. Well, or something's happened that makes yeah. it seem as though Moriarty's back. And and part of this, I think, goes back to we still don't know what happened at the end of series two. We don't know how Sherlock survived. Yeah. And, and I, I hope they don't tell us. Um, I don't think we need to know. Yeah, I, I don't think we need to know. But at the same time, we almost kind of do need to know if Moriarty is back in any sort of way. Yeah, well, I think what they will do is Moriarty will definitely be dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he will have left some kind of like series of booby traps, whether it's in it's probably somehow computerized, that was set to kick in a year after he died. Mm-hmm. And so now that and like he's had it so that every time he has to like put in this code every year, otherwise the, the booby trap goes off and he's dead now. So the booby trap goes off and it's it's going to destroy London's intercommun like it, telecommunications or whatever for for whatever, uh, whatever the plot is of it to, to destroy the world. It's uh, it's going to take effect and Sherlock is going to have to try and fix it. See, I, I, I think that's an interesting take on it. I think. Sherlock has something to do with it. I think the return of Moriarty is actually some sort of plan of Sherlock's. Hmm. That sounds like mm, conspiracy theory. <laughs> well, it, 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 for me, it's that if Moriarty had this deep game, this deep long game for after he died, fine. But Sherlock deliberately, like they explicitly say that Sherlock spent two years taking out Moriarty's entire network. Network, yeah. And you'd think that he would know of anything along those lines. 
What if along that time, during those two years, Sherlock wasn't necessarily eliminating Moriarty's network, but he was embedding himself in it for something greater, for some bigger master plan, master villain even? Mm. I know. No, nope, I don't buy it at all. I like my plan better if Moriarty left a fail-safe trap. <laughs> See, but that's the thing. Like, I think it's just weird if Moriarty's just like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm the Joker now, and after you've killed me, I've I had this this intricate plan in play." I just I don't. For me, I don't buy that version of the character either. Yeah. You know, because he he it's it's not as if he died mysteriously. He knows why he, he like he he took his own life. He. He was in control of that, and and I don't see him particularly gaining much joy in because he thought he'd won over Sherlock, right? Like he thought that in taking his own life, he had beaten Sherlock. Yeah, and that's why I think it's not about Sherlock. This is just like a thing that Moriarty had set up in case he died to take over all the computers in London and do some nefarious plot against the people of London. Well, and you know what? This might be why they're doing a a single episode one-off before they get back to the regular series. So do you know this? They're going to do a um, a 19th century Sherlock starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, just yeah, one episode? Yeah, I did. I saw that. It sounds like it'd yeah. be really fun. Yeah, coming it seems out, like it's going to be Coming out on New Year's Day, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. But I think at the same time, they did... They did that because they have absolutely no idea how to resolve this Moriarty problem that they've gotten themselves into. <laughs> like they've they have brought back a villain who they have said again and again and again is explicitly dead, and yet at the same time he needs to have some sort of consistent sensical plan that drives the <laughs> the four series. Yeah, and they can't just bring in another villain because Magnuson kind of showed that they're not great at that. Yeah. So they brought I mean, back Moriarty, and then yeah. what's going to happen for the rest of the series? It's a good question. I mean, it could be Adler, right? Like she that could back, be one yeah. direction. Well, mm-hmm. she could be the mastermind, because mm-hmm. th- that seems like a move that she would make. Mm, maybe. But at the same time, I also kind of thought they resolved her story. So, well, you I don't know, know. I mean, I think I, I don't know what's going to happen with the next series of Sherlock, but what I do know is that I. I now trust the producers of the show and the creators of the show to do something great with it because so far they have done some of the greatest television I've seen in the last few years. When I first watched the BBC Sherlock for the first time, I put on episode one just to see what it's all about and I watched the whole first series. Mm -hmm. I couldn't stop because it was so good. And like uh, I haven't had that feeling about television in uh, maybe ever before that or since then. That I've just like, I have to keep watching this episode. I have to keep watching this show. I have to. Because it was that great. Uh, So whatever they do, I'm looking forward to it. I am too. I am too. And I think that their their trilogy style works really well for them. And it creates these fun little contained stories. And I mean, I think that they have, have really carefully understood what makes a good television show work. And and how little you need for it to be so big. Like there isn't a ton in in of Sherlock out there. It's it's such a a small little little bit. And each series could be the end of the show, but they're able to to tell these fantastic little self-contained stories. And I think this 
this series, maybe the third one more than any other, we do have a question of what happens next. Oh, no, never mind. The great game ends in the pool, and and the second one ends with his death. Okay, never mind. I'm a crazy person. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I think you're right in the sense that uh, everyone's looking forward to what they do next because they've done so well so far, and we're all excited for the future of the show. Most certainly. Ding! <laughs> That's a different podcast. We didn't say like goodbye or anything. Should we have said goodbye? Should we? We normally do, I think, but I don't think we have to. Thank you.